This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Very honored today to have Dr. Michael Fishman, MD. He's double board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. He graduated from Jefferson Medical College and went on to train in anesthesiology at Yale University. And he's board certified in pain management at Stanford University, where he completed his training. And now he works in Pennsylvania. He's an expert in the field. If you're in the world of pain management, you know who Dr. Fishman is. He's on multiple pain management boards. And what we're talking today about is his journey through really going from being a physician, expert physician in the field of pain management, to actually having neck surgery himself. So the thing I think the the real value he brings today is how does an expert like him in the medical field, what are his thoughts on the various modalities that everyone has to deal with? What, What are his thoughts on medications? What's his thought on physical therapy? Where does pain management as a specialty fit into this continuum of care? And then when do you need when you need surgery, because he also just went underwent neck surgery and his experience, again, going from the one giving advice to actually needing someone else to take care of him. So Dr. Fishman, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thanks, Chris. And thanks for uh, having me back. I'm glad to be um, able to discuss this journey, at least with you. But, you know, the funny thing is uh, I've been treating patients with neck and spine problems for a very long time. And I dealt with lumbar radiculopathy. I had pinched nerve pain in my back um, for some time. I remember when that first happened. Uh, it was the day that Prince passed away. Um, so I'll never forget that. And I was, you know, out having a good time. Everybody was listening to Prince music. That was, I mean, like the streetlights were purple. It was a, it was a crazy time. I happened to be in Minneapolis, uh, where Prince was really well known. And the next morning. I, you know, I woke up and my back and my leg were feeling a little, a little weird. By the end of the day, getting on my flight home to Philadelphia, my left leg was really, really painful. And I had a lot of difficulty sitting, you know, classic pinch nerve lumbar radiculopathy. And, and that over time got better. I had, you know, eventually got an MRI, showed an L5S1 disc herniation and, um, and a pretty impressive and big one. But I responded really well to epidural steroid injections and to physical therapy, you know, slash uh, yoga practice. And ultimately, my back and leg um, just continued to improve and my symptoms resolved. Um, I did have epidural steroid injections every, you know, three to 15 months since 2017 in my low back. Um, but that problem really controlled itself and subsequent MRIs showed me that, that this herniation got better. So here's, uh, here's, um, you said a lot and I'm just going to break it down. So for everyone who's listening, you have about five lumbar vertebrae in your low back. And then that goes to the sacrum general audience without any be- medical background. And so you have these five lumbar vertebrae and then you have a bone and a disc. And then sometimes that little disc will ooze out and impact the nerve. So when this first happened, um, what are your thoughts on, let's start with medications for a pinched nerve in your back? Yeah. So that's a really good question because I thought, you know, I, I realized, you know, back in college that if I took ibuprofen, it hurt my stomach. Um, and when I had a, this ridiculous pain or this pinched nerve pain, some people call it sciatica, it was pretty rough when I was sitting for any pr- prolonged period of time. That's like when you put more tension on the nerve, it's more uncomfortable. And for me, that, that was really the worst position. So in order for me to drive 30 plus minutes to work or to sit in a meeting or a movie or something like that, I had to find a solution. And for me, that was a, a different um, NSAID, a different non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug called diclofenac. And what, what I learned as, as a clinician, I knew it, that all these different NSAIDs, ibuprofen, uh, naproxen, 
Tylenol. And then the ones that, you know, people uh, don't maybe have as much familiarity with, uh, with as, as folks like us do. There's a whole variety of other NSAIDs. Those are not all like one family of medicines. They're not all related. They're very different when they're when, in the way that they behave in each individual person with side effects and also, you know, with ultimately with your clinical effect. And I found for me, I never got belly pain or stomach pain when I took diclofenac and I had a really good um, symptomatic relief. I was able to sit in the car for more than 30 minutes or, or go to a movie or something like that. Now, ultimately, the thing that I did that I think was really helpful um, early on in the course of my lumbar, my low back pain, and we'll talk about my neck later, um, was I started doing nerve glides. And for folks who, who don't know what a nerve glide is, it's pretty simple. If you imagine that the nerve is like a string that's connected from your spine, goes out a little hole on the side of your spine and down your leg, there's ways that you could put more tension on that string. And so usually if you, for me, it was sitting in a seated position, I would straighten out my leg and I would do a leg raise and I would raise it up to the point where I started to feel that, that numbing, um, tingling sensation going down my leg that was uncomfortable. And then I would make it worse. By taking my big toe and um, flexing it towards my face. And then I would lay off and I would kind of just go in and out and glide, almost like flossing the nerve in my back. And when things were really bad, I was doing that five or six or even 10 times a day um, for maybe five or 10 or 20 reps. And I found relief after every time um, because it really helps that nerve to have some ability to, to move and floss. The, the other thing is, you know, when I realized what the problem was and I'd been doing, you know, therapy and conservative treatment and taking medicines and hadn't gone away, I had near complete relief with epidural steroid injections and it got better and better. So the way I, I look at it with my back, just like I look at when I, when I look at patients is if we control the symptoms, like I'm okay sitting and waiting and hoping that the tincture of time is going to make me, make me healed as long as I'm putting my best foot forward and, you know, staying active, et cetera. The flip side to that is, and, and this is what you got at in the beginning is when do you make the call when you're like, that is not working. I have to do something different. And that, that's, that's tough because the easy part is, you know, when you have that scenario where you got discomfort and, for me, it was, you know, I would take a diclofenac or I would do nerve glides or I'd do both. And the discomfort would get better for, you know, for hours um, or even for, you know, for the rest of the day. Um, but, uh, you know, it would continue to come back until it didn't. That was kind of cool to watch it go away. What did you think about physical therapy? Did you just do the nerve glides on your own or did you go to a specific physical therapist? And if so, how did you pick the physical therapy you would do? So I did a combination of osteopathic manipulation um, with one of my partners uh, who does that service. And I went and, and worked with the physical therapists in my building. Uh, but most of the therapy that I was doing was independent uh, with their guidance. And then what was the tipping point? Because you're a pain physician and that's the specialty that does the majority of epidural steroid injections. How did you decide when to do an epidural steroid injection? And then the other big question to follow up is who did you choose or how did you choose who you're going to pick? And I'm using that as a question to facilitate if someone is in that same, same situation, like how do they pick a doctor? Epidural steroid injections for leg pain due to a hernia disc are very effective at controlling the pain. Um, in my experience and, you know, in general, person who comes in with leg pain from a herniated disc um, is usually a really good responder to an epidural steroid injection. And when I say that, I'm expecting that person to get weeks to months of relief from one or two injections, not years necessarily, but weeks to months of their leg pain. And that's kind of what happened to me. Um, I got to that point when I realized that I was starting to become reliant on taking diclofenac, like I had to take this medicine twice a day in order to avoid that really just bad discomfort in my leg. And it wasn't getting better. 
And so for me, you know, going from taking a medicine and changing my body position to feeling like I'm taking this medicine over and over just to get through the day, that's where I said, okay, well, I'm going to get an MRI and uh, get some advanced treatment. Choosing somebody to give me an epidural steroid injection. And I, you know, I had a plain old L5 S1 um, lumbar interlaminar epidural steroid injection, you know, kind of a basic, basic uh, procedure. You know, anybody who's a fellowship trained board certified physician in pain medicine can perform that injection. Uh, I went with convenience and I, I actually had that with another physician who's um, in my office and we happen to be in the office at the same day. So for me, it was really simple and convenient. Over the years, I've had injections from five or six different pain medicine physicians, all of whom you know I know are well-trained and I, I would trust to see my patients if I was unavailable and vice versa. And I think that, you know, as long as you um, look at the credentials, I think fellowship training and board certification are important, um, at least for the layperson to consider. You know, you really don't, there are a lot of people who are really good at what they do, but if you're board certified and fellowship trained, the likelihood is for most of the bread and butter procedures, like we're describing, that person is going to be competent and going to be accurate. And then if you want to talk about just educate the general public, so they're told by their physician, um, they have a herniated disc, lumbar spine. Uh, what are the odds of that disc getting worse versus getting better on its own? You know, Chris, that's a really good question. And I think it depends a lot on the circumstances in, in general, my my philosophy is that if we're able to control the symptoms and there is not progressive weakness, that is, you know, no matter how much pain you're having, if your leg, leg keeps getting weaker because of a herniated disc, something's got to be done. But if we're able to control your symptoms, oftentimes your body is going to reabsorb um, the, the disc herniation unless it happens to get stuck in a, in a really inconvenient spot. Now, there's other things with your anatomy, like the alignment of your spine. Uh, and if the alignment of the spine is off um, and you have kind of a misalignment, I think that ultimately portends to a, a more likelihood of a surgical outcome um, being achieved and patients moving towards surgery. Uh, it's like the difference between, you know, uh, crushing a soda can. You know, when you step on a soda can, you, you you change its shape, but it's, it's all connected, right? I mean, that's a little bit different than smashing a glass bottle uh, in terms of where patients end up or where your anatomy ends up. And so when people have an unstable spine, obviously, you know, we're moving towards pushing them to surgery um, and earlier rather than later. But if you don't have un an unstable spine and it's just pain, you know, we're actually really good at treating that. And time is also really good at treating that. And conveniently, pain doctors don't fix your problem oftentimes with this. We just buy you the quality of life while your body heals itself. What are your thoughts on supplements? You know, that's a great question. I think for, um, for certain, so I'm, I'm learning more and more about things like supplements for longevity. And people keep rec recommending that to read uh, that that book, uh, lifespan, um, thinking about supplements for neuropathic pain. I think about supplements in three different ways. Uh, I think about supplements for headaches and for people who suffer from headaches and, and facial pain, there's actually a lot of benefits to a variety of different supplements. And the American headache society has a really good list on their website. Um, but there's some pretty impressive, uh, supplements out there that perform just as well, if not better than pharmaceutical drugs for back pain and for leg pain for pinched nerve pain i never took any supplements i never i really never treated anything other than inflammation um, with anti-inflammatories uh, at all during during the course of both my low back issues and also my neck issues and that seemed to work really well for me what are your thoughts on chiropractic here and how it fits into that treatment pathway? You know, Chris, I think that the ultimate arbiter of truth 
for any specific type of physical care is what the patient brings to the table and what the practitioner brings to the table. And so I don't think about chiropractic care or physical therapy or athletic trainers or um, Pilates or yoga or any of these things as distinct. Because at the end of the day, it depends on a couple of like basic human nature factors. Like, is this a good match? The provider and the patient, are they going to be motivating to one another? Are they going to give their all? Are they going to actually get it done? Meaning is it convenient to the patient's house to get there? You know, if you have a car, if you, if you believe that only a chiropractor is going to help you, but the nearest chiropractor is 30 miles away and physical therapy is down the street, I'm telling you go to PT, you know? Um, but I think it's really very important that it's the individual's interaction. It's what the patient brings to it, what the, the provider brings to it, more so um, than which underlying fundamental training that person has, whether they're a, a physical therapist or a chiropractor or um, you know, a, a kinesiologist or a variety of other different um, folks who are participating in this type of rehabilitation space. I th- um, and this is this will be probably one of my last questions regarding the low back pain before we move on to the neck pain. And this is probably more of the more um, challenging question. So what what's your stance on opioid medication for pinched nerve sciatica pain? Uh, well, number one, take a step back. If you have pain that improves with changing your body position, like for me, my my pain went away like a hundred percent almost all the time when I was standing. If you have pain that improves with your body position, there's very few medicines that are likely to be effective in the long term. Medicines are not your problem or your solution. In some individuals, for some specific activities, if that person, you know, we're trying to buy them time to to improve, you know, there might be a role in some select individuals for opiates. When I think about in implementing opiates in any treatment um, paradigm, it depends a lot on what your expectations are and what the risks are. Um, I like a, a medicine called buprenorphine, which comes in a couple of different forms. It's incredibly safe as opiates go. In fact, if you're you know addicted to opiates, we would give you that drug in doses, you know, a hundred times what we give it to you to, to treat pain. But on the flip side, they're not specifically geared towards this type of nerve pain. So for me, opiates are not a first-line treatment unless somebody's in agony and then it's just humane to try and get them out of agony in the short term. If somebody came to me with pinched nerve pain and they were severe enough for me to to say, you know what, I'm going to prescribe an opiate for you today, which Chris, I see hundreds of patients a month and maybe this happens a couple of times a year. If that happens, the chances are pretty good that I'm going to be giving you an injection in a couple of days to try and get control of your pain. Or depending on your imaging, I'm going to be sending you to surgery because I'm guessing I'm not going to be able to help you. Um, but anti-inflammatories, they work really, really well. Um, and usually what I, what I recommend for most folks. So this is going to be another kind of controversial topic. What are your thoughts on oral steroids? a step up above just like ibuprofen, naproxen, diclofenac. So that oral steroids. Yeah. I mean, I think we give um, dose packs of, of steroids to people, you know, that's the, the, you know, the little taper where you take it for a week or so and get the little dose pack. What I think about it is that it's better than nothing in certain individuals, depending on what's up with them. Right. If somebody's got really bad diabetes or, um, bipolar disorder, you know, you don't want to trigger a manic episode by giving somebody a steroid pack. You don't want to tr- trigger super high blood sugars either. So it, as long as it's appropriate for the patient, it's not, it's not a bad choice, but you know, it's, it's kind of like the dose makes the poison. And, and also real estate is very important when we talk about this. If we give you lots of steroids throughout your whole body, yes, they're going to reduce your inflammation. But my experience that's not giving enough of a dose to the spine. And what ends up happening is that person takes those steroids for that seven days. And then on the eighth day or ninth day, their pain's really coming back. So from my standpoint, you know, if you have a fire going on in your body, rather than 
you know, throwing your body into a lake, why don't we put out the fire right where it is? And so injecting a steroid to me is at the site of, of, um, at the site of pain or the pain generator is a much better choice, both as a patient and also as a physician. Um, I think that we often see these patients who take these steroid packs and you know what, it's not a bad choice in an emergency. Um, but it's not ideal in all patients and it certainly doesn't last very long. A little bit different than your back then going into your neck. That's where you, can you just talk us through how that, that progressed? Yeah. So, you know, I, I thought things were going great. I was doing yoga. My neck was, you know, my neck had bothered me every once in a while for years, like many people do, but usually for like a week or two, a year, something like that. A couple of episodes here or there, always self-limited and getting better on its own. Never with numbness or tingling and any of the weird stuff. Um, I would say over the last year, give or take, basically pretty much all of 2022, I started to notice more significant pain and some radiating pain down into these first two fingers. Um, and I actually got uh, a couple epidural steroid injections uh, in my neck um, from a partner of mine, and they seemed to it seemed to improve. Over the course of the year, as I got closer and closer to my 40th birthday, literally four days afterwards, I, I was in such agony that I went and got an MRI. And it showed a, that a, at C67, I had this disc herniation that had gotten stuck in the small hole that uh, my nerve exits there. And I was getting number and weaker in these two fingers to the point where I couldn't do things like open my watch or button the buttons on my shirt without really fumbling and, and feeling like my brain and my fingers were not connecting. And you can see it's, it's still a little bit difficult to get it back, but I can do it. Um, that was happening. And gosh, it wasn't getting better no matter what I was doing. I, I felt pretty rough um, every day. Then when I looked at the pictures, you know, it's like being the princess and the pea. And, you know, for me, I'm, I was the princess here. That pea was stuck in the nerve hole, like so far off to the side of the neck, all the way off into the right side, that no shots were, were really going to touch it. It was just a pretty tight nerve hole. So, you know, at that point, I, I, I knew that I was getting really goofy and having really big problems with dexterity. And that was the moment when I was like, you know what, I gotta, I gotta do something more than the minimally invasive stuff I've been doing. So what, what you're saying, just to summarize it, then is if you just have pain, but no numbness, weakness, then conservative measures such as steroid injections, et cetera, are a great idea. But when you start having that numbness, weakness, loss of function, that's what you're thinking surgery. Yeah. I mean, certainly more advanced imaging. I mean, that's when you want to start to figure out what's, what is the lesion and you know, I'm, I'm a professional. I do this for a living. I didn't go and run and get an MRI before my first epidural steroid injection. I'll tell you, I, I personally, you know, it's a hypocritical thing. I wouldn't inject anybody unless I saw their imaging first. But my partner and I, you know, I, I, I was able to convince him, hey, I think this is the problem. I'd like you to do this injection without getting an MRI first. I wouldn't recommend that for the layperson. I'm pretty sure that I knew what was going on. And it turned out, you know, unfortunately, I was I was co pretty correct, like pretty accurate about what my problem was. When I saw it on the screen, when my symptoms got worse and worse on the MRI, I was like, oh, crap, you know, this is just not going to get better with shots. I know that. Um, but then you have to think about a really important question, Chris, you know, what's if you're going to have surgery, what kind of surgery? Because, you know, you and I know uh, and the lay people don't always understand that there's a bunch of different ways to skin cat or to cut your neck. And what? Uh, who to do it, where to do it. So many questions uh, really, really got me thinking. Um, but I, you know, I, I would say that I, I went through a really big thought experiment. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to stop and pause and let you ask some questions. And what's um, where I ended up, I think actually ended up making the most sense for me 
and is most authentically the way I've been practicing medicine. So it's kind of an interesting, um, well, please finish your thought. I'm like, I'm sure everyone's really curious. Like, what are you going with this? So, I mean, I started out by thinking, thinking, oh my, this is my neck. I need to, let me search the country for who's the best person at taking care of this particular type of, of, of disc herniation, because not all disc herniations are the same. Spine surgery for the neck, you see, I have no scars here. It can be done through the front. It can also be done through the back. And can also be done through the sides. There's a bunch of different ways to do it. There are people who do it with little scopes um, through little cameras, called endoscopy. And there's people, people who do this through big cuts. And what I've learned being a physician is what you want to really understand is what's the problem, like granularly, not like, you know, if you're talking about a car, you know, like my car doesn't start. Well, if that's when you, if you're going in and saying, all right, well, my car doesn't start, what you need is diagnostics, not treatment. But if you know what the problem is, you know that the issue is with, you know, uh, whatever, the starter on a 1969 Maserati, you don't want to go to Meineke and walk in and be like, yo, you guys probably have heard of this car. Could you fix it? You want to go to a shop that does maseratis from the 60s because you know what the problem is and for me i i had to learn a little bit more about some of the various options to treat a far lateral disc herniation in your neck there's a couple of ways to do it some people will come in through the front spread the bones apart pull out the disc material and then put a little plate that's called an ACDF or anterior cervical discectomy infusion. There are some people who would go in and take out all the disc and then replace the disc, do a cervical disc arthroplasty, a disc replacement. There's a, a very interesting procedure named after a guy who's a neurosurgeon at um, Allegheny Medical Center in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, named Dr. Joe, J-H-O, called the Joe procedure. And Dr. Joe comes in from the front, but doesn't put plates or a, a fake disc in. He uses an endoscope, he uses a small camera to make a very small cut in the bone over the joint of your neck on whichever side your problem is. It's almost like going to the front of that nerve hole, taking the front of it off, and then he actually takes the disc material out through uh, a scope hole, through a little camera hole. Really cool. And then ultimately, there's the posterior approach where people go in, they don't go in over the middle of your spine where, you know, when you touch the back, you feel those the kind of dinosaur spikes that we all have. They go in o over the, the side and do almost the exact same thing I said Dr. Joe does from the front. They do that from the back and make a small hole or window in the bone, move the nerve, the one that's getting pinched out of the way and scoop out the disc material that's pushing on it, put everything back. And that's ultimately what I decided to do. And I thought about going all over the world and talking to these different folks, but what, what I ended up, what I ended up doing first was talking to the surgeon that I send most patients who come to me with neck problems to for neck surgery. And I sat down with him and we talked about the different options and, you know, he's been doing this for a while. And what's interesting is since going and talking to other surgeons and other folks in the space, a lot of people are very surprised that I had surgery coming from the back, that I would choose surgery from the back. But for this particular problem, I sat down with my, my colleague, neurosurgeon Perry Argiers. He says, you know, this is a basic surgery we've been doing for years and years and years. And if, if done right, you come in from the back, your trap, your trapezius, that muscle is going to hurt and really require you to rehab it. But no plates, no fusions, and really low complication rates. And oftentimes, this is the most um, minimally invasive procedure that we can do for this problem. And he was right. I woke up, my hand was 95% better 
And two weeks later, I started yoga again. I've been doing yoga ever since, and I'm 99% better. I have a little bit of numbness still in, my, in the, just the tip of my finger, but it's nothing like it was before. Um, he's right. The trapezius was the, by far the worst part. My arm felt better immediately. My hand felt better immediately. My trap was pretty rough for a couple of weeks. Um, but it's getting better and better. Is there a reason that you didn't go with that minimally invasive, one of those more minimally invasive approaches? So I, I looked at, I looked at it practically and I looked at my, my MRI and my anatomy and I had a really big disc herniation. It was coming from the front of Mm -hmm. my, um, neck hole coming from the front. That's where the disc is going all the way to the back. Uh, and I think the, the question that I had is in my head, what makes more sense? Having surgery coming through the front, um, as safe as that might be with all my you know vital organs and structures in the way and reaching all the way to the back or coming through from the back, going through some muscle uh, and being able to take care of that. It was also influenced by the confidence of my surgical colleague. Um, and who, you know, him telling me, listen, I've done this many, many times before that people do really well. And that doubled down my, my confidence with him, you know, because we work together all the time and for him to be so confident with me, made made me feel really doubly confident. I, I then was able to have the surgery in my own surgical center. And I had some of the greatest care from handpicked expert staff that I get to work with all the time. Nobody even played a joke on me. Like I half expected to wake up to have my fingernails painted or, you know, um, my hair dyed or, you know, just something funny. Uh, but no, they just, they took just great care of me. Like, like I was family. Um, what advice would you have for someone who has to undergo surgery to pick their surgeon? Um, you have the benefit of working with a lot of different surgeons and you can pick who you think would give you the best outcome. But what if you're going to this blind and you just, you have this herniation do you go with who the pain doctor recommends do your do your research what would be your advice i think there's three important tenets that i want people to take away from my experience is one you have to research your condition and and you know chris you and i are board certified anesthesiologists and pain physicians and we we know a lot um about neck surgeries and the different types but I didn't really, I recognize all the different nuances and approaches that were out there. Um, just the ones that I'd seen commonly in the areas I'd practiced. So for me, looking at my own condition and spending the time to use reliable sources, um, you know, for me, literature searches like we do with PubMed, but there's other reliable sources out there. I learned a lot about what questions to ask the surgeon. And then I did consult with the neurosurgeon I send a lot of patients to. And I asked him, what about the endoscopic approach? Why not? Why wouldn't you recommend just doing a disc replacement or an ACDF? And I asked about the different approaches. So I think the best thing that, that patients can do is not just walk in and expect to be told what the options are, but to research some of your options and ask about them. What's your experience been, especially if it's something that seems like Chris, like you described, the difference between going through the front and going through the back. I mean, I you know I have a I have a, a reasonable sized scar back here. Um, what's the difference between that? And let the surgeon explain it to you. If you don't like their answer, that's great. You've made that um, that red flag in your or yellow flag in your head. If you don't like their answer. I think you should get a second opinion. If any of the answers that you get to the questions you ask that surgeon. Um, don't sit well with you, ask the same question to another surgeon. And I know that might delay things and take time. That's a challenge. But on the flip side, what, what I also know is that not everybody has the same problem. And because of that, the solutions we have in modern medicine are not one size fits all. And the experience is certainly not one size fits all. And you want somebody who does this type of surgery all the time. So I talked to a bunch of folks and they said, wow, I didn't realize people did posterior cervical foraminotomies anymore. 
that's what I was, that's what I've been told by a lot of fr friends of ours and colleagues of ours. And, you know, when I talked to my neurosurgeon, he said, you know, this is a basic surgery. I think you'll do really well. We'll be doing this for years with good outcomes. Now, I don't know what, or what is the, um, the genesis of that, but I do know in my practice, a lot of people who come in with posterior cervical decompressions infusions. So that's when they take away that midline bone, that spiky bone, those people have a lot of neck pain after surgery that it's really hard for me to treat. So I think there is maybe a, a movement away from wanting to do posterior surgeries, um, or maybe that's just, that's just my thinking too much about this. What do you think, Chris? Um, so wait, please clarify, which, which surgery exactly did you get? So I had a posterior cervical laminal foraminotomy at C67. Okay. Um, I don't so think that's a common procedure, at least in my area. So um, I think it's different. And then, wait, I'm sorry. What was the question you asked me? Uh, clarify it. You know, what, when I see patients who come in after posterior decompressions, not what I had. Yeah. What, posterior what, yes, procedures where they take away the, that the spinous process or this, mm -hmm. you know, um, spiky bone that you can touch those people in my experience have terrible pain in the, in the back of their neck. And it's really hard for me to treat. Um, so maybe, you know, consciously or unconsciously, there's a bias for many surgeons to avoid posterior approaches if they can. Um, what I, what I, what I, what I've found, and I don't know if you've, you've noticed this, but the more invasive the surgery, the more likely it is that, you're going to have pain. If you're taking out a whole chunk of bone with a large incision, you're probably going to have more pain. Um, for posterior laminectomies, I found that something called a cervical medial branch block, and if that works in ablation, so putting those nerves to sleep could work really well. Um, I know there are a lot of other therapies coming out now to treat that type of pain. But I've, what I've also noticed is it's sometimes really dependent on who the surgeon is. Um, like all things, um, there's some people that are better at things than others. I tried drywalling a house a while ago. It's the first time I've ever drywalled anything and um, it didn't go well. <laughs> and then I saw someone else drywall and they're great at it, but it's, that's what they do all day. Drywall, professional drywaller. And uh, now I know why they're professional drywallers because it was the first time I was doing it. So exactly to echo what you said, if someone's doing a surgery a lot and they have a lot of experience with it, they're probably going to be good at it. But again, just because someone's been doing something a long time doesn't necessarily mean like they'll be great at it. Like my grandmother drives a lot. doesn't mean she's great at it. <laughs> well, and, and it's also doesn't mean that she knows how to use every car. And, you know, that's yeah. the, and that's the other thing that's that we really have to think about as, as clinicians and as pain doctors, what's the problem? What are the options? Right. And patients need to think about that. Back pain is not a problem. It's a symptom. There's lots of reasons potentially why you might have it, but, at the end of the day, what I'm trying to find, at least what I was trying to find as a patient, and also what I try to find for all my patients, is an accurate diagnosis that makes sense, and it gives us a target to treat. And that's one of the biggest challenges, I think, that's out there is people don't know where to start because they, they've gone to a bunch of doctor's appointments, and they actually don't know what their problem is, um, whether it hasn't been explained or it hasn't even been kind of teased out, and people are just treated with like the basic, you know, um, you know, rest, uh, ice compression elevation, you know, <clears throat> if you did that and your ankle doesn't get better, you get some pictures. There are some people though, where imaging is delayed for a long time. And it, a part of that is the way that coverage dictates care. And I think that's something that we didn't talk about before. You know, I had the benefit of taking care of all of these episodes of care for the most part with minimal use of my insurance. Like I used it to get MRIs, but you know, I was just getting the treatment when it was convenient for me. It's never convenient to get out of your regular routine, especially when you're, when you're in pain and to, to move forward with these things. So it adds an element, uh, an additional element of strain and stress on the patient. And I think you, what I, what I think you highlighted not directly, but I'll ask the direct question now is how you should interact with the medical system. So 
I'll see people and I'll tell them all the time, if you have research you want me to go over, I'm happy to go over it with you and I'll discuss my thoughts on it. But I also encourage everyone, like if I'm seeing someone, if you want to get a second opinion, I'd encourage you to get a second opinion because I'll back everything I say with research. And there's a really good rationale why I'm doing what I'm doing. And another physician may disagree with me and they may have equally valid reasons. And sometimes it's just a coin cost as to which side of a fence you fall on. But I would really encourage people to go for a second opinion. Um, but I've had patients come to me and they've worked with other physicians and uh, those physicians get really snarky about their patients seeing anyone else. So I don't know if you want to discuss how to navigate the medical system if if you're not a physician or I think a specialist like yourself. Yeah, I think it's hard. And to be honest with you, I think there's a couple of things that I've, I've seen patients and their support people do that I, th- I think is wise. Um one, ask very specifically, can you give me a, a summary of your assessment? If you ask those words, the doctors are trained to spit back to you, okay, you're a you know 40-year-old guy with a C6-7 disc herniation, failed conservative management, MRI uh, indicates, um, you know, this, that, and the other. And my plan is, you know, to recommend surgery since you've not been able to make it through all these other things. That's more helpful sometimes than saying, what's the diagnosis? And the diagnosis, in, my, in that case, it's me, would be cervical radiculopathy. It doesn't give you as much clarity as to what the physician's thinking as when you ask, hey, what's your assessment? and plan. And doctors really understand what that means. So part of it is asking the question so that you get the right answer that you want is asking, what's your diagnosis? They'll say, oh, it's M54.12, M99.71. And, you know, it's this and this and this. And those codes, while helpful for doing research and helpful for billing and coding and things like that, they don't tell you the specifics about this case. They just help us categorize it. And you want to know that you're getting as accurate of an assessment as possible. I think that the ultimate arbiter of comfort in the patient-doctor relationship is a two-way communication that works. So, if, you know, if you're asking a simple question and not getting an answer, you know, that's tough and you should probably go elsewhere. On the flip side, I think it's important for, for patients to realize that research shows when you come into my office, as a patient, if everything I tell you, you take about 30% of that away for a variety of reasons. Some of it is physical things, like I speak too quickly or not loud enough. Some of it is um, you know, psychological things like anxiety or uh, focusing on other things or being distracted. And some of it is just, you know, that it's... It's not the, the, the verbal or the oral tradition is not ideal for passing on medical information. If I write it down, people retain about two-thirds or 60% of what you tell them. So the thing that I, I think is important is people write down, take their own notes, because that's really helpful, rather than trying to interpret it, the notes that I write down or the after-visit summary you get from your doctor. Make sure you take your own notes. And when you're talking about things that are really important, bring a list of questions prepared because sometimes in that visit, you'll get off on a tangent and you'll walk out not having answered some of the important questions that you, you would like to cover. The best case scenario is you send those questions to me in advance, either through the portal or you write those questions out and it's right on the front of the chart. My staff is putting it on there. So I walk in the room. I know these are the things that are important to you. And I want to make sure we get through them. Um, so communication is really critical. And then don't, don't take generic answers as being specific to you. So, and, and the other thing is the other question I'm going to have is how do you pick your physician? So like I'm in the pain world and I would say, like, I know your credentials. I know like you've published a lot. Everyone knows who you are in the pain world. So if someone needed an injection, 
or a pain management issue, simple or really complicated, like, oh, Dr. Michael Fishman, that's who I'm going to go to, done. But I'm in the pain world and I know that space. Um, but I wouldn't know who to go to in like neurosurgery land or orthopedic land or any other world. Um, how would you go about like, if you were just a lay person or picking a field that you know nothing about, how would you figure out who do you see and especially trust you with something as, as important as like a critical illness? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that I do, I would think about it a couple of different ways. So one, if you have a weird condition, an unusual condition, an orphan disease, then you want to actually look at who's working with that population. And usually that's going to be done by searching the medical literature and who's publishing papers related to that. Now, if it's a really weird condition, you might have to go and find and see that person. If it's completely impossible for that to be the case, most of the times those people who are publishing their email addresses out there on those papers, and you can email them and ask for somebody that they've trained who's in your locale. And most of these folks are happy to tell you, hey, listen, this guy, this guy trained with me, this girl trained with me, she's fantastic. And you know, they're in the a nearby city to you or in your city. I think that. That's how I would approach looking at finding a specialist for a family member with an unusual condition. In the community, if you're if I'm looking to find a a surgeon for a condition like I don't know anything about that I've never interacted with, I'm usually going to ask a nurse who works in the hospital or works in a surgical center and and knows how these guys or girls function and behave. And ultimately that to me is the, the best that I can do. What I know is this, people have studied this. You don't have to be an expert to know if somebody's an expert at what they're doing. I don't care what it is, but if I watch, and we'll put it this way, if I watch somebody who does drywall all day long, I'm going to know that guy, that guy's great. And I, I watch Chris Ferguson. I'm going to know that, you know, you'll probably get it done, but like the efficiency, the economy of movement, the speed, like the accuracy that this other guy makes look effortless is definitely not that easy for you. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, I get it. <laughs> and, and people see that and people know that. And I, mm -hmm. I would say that it's incredibly important. And as an anesthesiologist, I, I would say this is incredibly important with surgery, all surgical disciplines. Watching a master surgeon perform a simple operation like a uh, taking out a gallbladder or, or an appendix watching a master surgeon do that versus watching a trainee let alone um you know let alone a a surgeon who's graduated and practicing on their own there's a vast difference but there's also a vast difference between watching most surgeons perform that procedure and a master surgeon. The outcomes are the same. But when you look at it, it's like watching, you know, a high school musician and a professional. And both can play the same tune. And both will play the, that same tune better than a toddler, for sure. But it's obvious obvious to even any lay person that there's a difference in, in the mastery of their craft. And, you know, surgery is precise, precisely that it's a master craft. And not everybody, even if you can complete surgical training, even if you make it through your residency and all those things, not everybody is that skilled with their hands. And, you know, your skills, hopefully, in your career, the the skills and um that people have they lean on and hopefully you lean on the things that you're best at but sometimes if you're a surgeon and you know your hands are not your best thing you're in a, a job where unfortunately you got to work with your hands i think you need to be be careful of folks who are out there like that and the same thing goes for pain doctors or interventionalists or anybody who's doing interventions you you can watch a hundred people do it and rate them 
And consistently, whether you're an expert or whether you're a layperson, you're going to know who's good and who's not just by watching their hands move. Any closing thoughts, any advice for someone who may be dealing with neck pain or back pain? Yeah, I think, I think what I, what I would say that the most important thing to me is, you know, we, you touched on it earlier, medications are way overused for these problems. These problems most of the time have a really significant mechanical component to it. You got to understand what the problem is. And so there's lots of people out there who are, you know, self-treating their back pain or their neck pain or their leg pain or their arm pain. And the ibuprofen is working. I hear you. You're not getting stomach problems like me. And you're just, you're, you're, you're doing, you're doing it. You know, something's wrong, but it's a pain in the butt to go get it worked up and figured out and engage in treatment because ibuprofen works pretty well as long as you keep taking it over and over or, or even Percocet or pills and your family doctors giving you those. And because they don't know better that, you know, they know you're not a drug addict. They know you have pain, but remember, you don't actually know what your problem is. So if you're out there and you're treating this yourself, even if your treatment's working, you got to know what the problem is. And most of the time that requires seeing somebody like me or Chris and getting some pictures taken. So we know not just how you're doing today and what today's solution is to keep you with an improved quality of life, but to figure out like which direction you're going to go and how do we watch for that and surveil it. So I think the biggest message I have is not for the people who are out there already seeing doctors. I think there's probably people out there who are self-treating and Googling their own care and they might end up on this podcast. Um, Those are the folks who really need an accurate diagnosis because they've already got a treatment plan that might actually be working for them. But an accurate diagnosis really helps set set your stage for the rest of your life and um, helps us understand how to prevent future disease and treat what you've got before it gets worse. Perfect. Dr. Michael Fishman, thank you so much for sharing your story and really giving some, fa- I, I, I learned a lot listening to you and just how to navigate the system. And I'm hoping our listeners will also learn how to navigate the medical system and what questions to ask when they have often a really life-threatening or painful condition. Thanks, Chris. I appreciate it. And uh, hope you have a great afternoon. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again, and see you next time.